Well, it's with that attitude that I ask you to remain standing as we read the word of the Lord. Today, we're going to begin a brand new series. It's really picking up where we left off late spring. In this late spring, we worked through the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2. And then this summer, we looked at Proverbs. But now we're back in the book of Ephesians. And our new series, Broken Down Wall, is going to look at the significance of Jesus' work, not just for our lives individually, but ultimately for the human race, for for. Uh, for different ethnicities, but today we're going to start verses 11 through 13. Listen now to God's word. The text says, it says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Well, let's stop right there. Go ahead. Have a seat. Now, today we're going to start this series, and, and uh, it's called Broken Down Wall. And we're going to talk about a handful of different walls that are historically or even contemporarily significant. But, but I want to set things up for you today by asking you to think about one of the most famous walls in history, the Great Wall of China. You know, the Great Wall of China was constructed over about 300 years by the Ming Dynasty from about 13, middle of the 1300s to the uh, middle of the 1600s. The Ming Dynasty, they created this Great Wall And this wall had the express purpose of preventing the outside world from access. They didn't want the outside world coming in. They didn't want the world as it developed and it changed to come in and influence their culture. They didn't want other countries or other nations to come in and and terrorize them or attack them or wage war upon them. And so their solution at that time period was to build this great wall. Uh, I'm curious, if anybody here ever visited the Great Wall of China? We had one person last service that they, they had visited it. So between the three services, one person has visited it. This thing is massive. And, and the purpose of this wall to prevent access, I, I want that picture. You can't come in. You can't come near. You, you shall not pass. Anybody? Okay. Lord of the Rings? Any? Okay. I want that wall to serve as a picture for us today. As we think about another wall, another wall that I would exist, or I would argue it exists for every single person before they trust in Christ. And this is the wall of access to God. Do you realize that without Christ, there was a giant wall that was built? This giant spiritual wall that has been built between you and God. And this wall, it is built because of, because of you and because of me, because of our rebellion, because of our sin. 
The reality is that God is a holy God and in his holiness, nothing unholy should enter into his presence. And because of you and I and our rebelliousness and our sin, we had managed to construct a wall that doesn't just rival the Great Wall of China, but, but it supersedes the Great Wall of China. It far exceeds that. And because of that wall, you and I, what we're gonna see in the passage today, we had no access to God. I was talking to someone between services and they said, man, the first part of this sermon is rough. Because the first part of the sermon, it's going gonna, it's gonna to emphasize this reality that you and I, without Christ, we had no access to God. But if you hold on till the end, if you hold on to the end, you're going to see that really the big idea today. The main point of verses 11 through 13, we're going to see that that wall of access, that that wall that prevented us to to enter into the presence of God the Father, here's what we're going to see is that Jesus broke down the wall of your access to God. We're going to get there. It's just going to take us a few verses to get there. It's just going to take us a little bit of time. And so if you have not already, would you open up your Bible? Would you open up your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2? And as you turn there, I want you just to begin to consider. Consider that wall, that spiritual wall that separated you from God the Father. And if you can, begin to consider the significance of that wall being broken down. That you now, as someone who is, if you have trusted in Christ, you now have immediate and free and welcomed access to God. With that said, let's look at at Ephesians 2, picking up in verse 11. What the Apostle Paul is going to do here is he's going to ask the Ephesian believers, and then by extension, he's going to ask us to remember. To remember a few things about themselves before they were in Christ, and you and I, we get to do the same thing. We get to remember some things about ourselves before we were in Christ. Here's where we start. We start by remembering or remember our old external identity. We remember who we were. We remember our identity. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 11. This is going to use some language that we might not be familiar with. We're going to define it in time. But here's what verse 11 says. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time, the time in the past, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. We're going to talk about those terms in just a minute. But I want us to start with those first two words. Therefore, remember. Therefore. And whenever you see that word in the scripture, it's calling back to the the previous passage. So in context, what the believers would hold in their mind, or what the reader of Ephesians is holding in their mind, is they're holding verses 1 through 10 as tightly as possible in their mind. Therefore, based on everything we've just seen in verses 1 through 10, therefore remember. Now, I don't have time to, to exhaustively explore verses 1 through 10, but, but late spring, early, early summer, we went through verses 1 through 10. If you remember the series, we called it From Death to Life. And the reality is Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10, it's one of the clearest pictures of the gospel, of the core beliefs of a Christian. You remember what we talked about those four weeks? In in those four weeks, we talked about what, first of all, we called our desperate state. Verse 11 says, therefore, remember. But I want you to remember today our desperate state. 
In fact, if you have your Bible open, just look at at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Here's what it says. It says, And you, and you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we We all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, the week we preached that, the week we examined our desperate state, we examined that, and we said that this this passage describes a life without Christ. It describes a life without Christ that is, first of all, verse 1, dead, in the trespasses and sins. You know, without Christ, you are not spiritually okay. Without Christ, you don't have spiritual okay days and spiritual good days and spiritual bad great days. Without Christ, you and I, we were, we were spiritually dead. And the text continues. It says not only were we spiritually dead, but we were externally disobedient. It says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And then it says this, in which you once walked. Your life was defined by sin. You, you, you acted on your sin. Your external actions, your, you lived a life of disobedience. Externally, you did the wrong things. But not only did we do the wrong things, we did the wrong things because we believed and thought and loved the wrong way. Not only were we externally disobedient, but the text continues and it describes a soul that is internally deranged. I use that word on purpose. We were internally broken. Look at the text. It says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh. Here's what it says. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. See, in our desperate state, you know what we did? We did whatever we wanted to. If it pleased us, we did it. If we could get away with it, we did it. We followed our, our internal desires, and our internal desires were, they were aimed at the wrong place. Tragically, this verse continues, and it says that we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is describing a life that is not just spiritually dead, not just externally disobedient, not just internally deranged, but it is eternally, and here's the word, eternally damned. Children of wrath is is a child that has the wrath of God aimed at them. Listen, this is our desperate state. When we get to verses 11 and 12, and Paul says, therefore remember, this is what we must have in our mind. If we're going to understand this wall being broken down, we must understand the reality of that wall in our everyday lives and how we lived. But then you get to verse 4. In verse 4, you get two of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. But God... You see, in our desperate state, God has definitive action. God acted decisively. Look at verses 4 through 9. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. I mean, just take, take a moment and marvel at the significance of that line. 
when you were at your worst, when you were as deep as you could be in your sinfulness, when your actions, when your rebelliousness had reached its highest height, God was rich in mercy and had a great love toward you. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. You realize what this says. It says that by grace, God saved you. This doesn't say that you were dead in your sins and trespasses, but you started to get your act together. You started to do some things right, and so God saved you. This says that you were dead, and he saved you. You were disobedient, and he loved you. By grace, you have been saved. When when we get to verse 11, look at verse 11. When it says, therefore, remember. Here's what it's saying. It's saying, because of all that God has done, it it has an eye to the the current reality of who you are, but it's, it's asking us to remember where we came from. You realize that remembering, remembering is is a key practice in the believer's life. You know, one of the most important things you will ever do as a Christian is remember. I mean, how easy is it for us just to go day after day? Here's my next task. Here's my next responsibility. Here's my next adventure. Here's my next thing to do. Here's my next conversation. And and how sad it is when we don't stop and remember Now, I think about the book of Deuteronomy. In the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, it's the second giving of the law. And Moses, Israel's leader, he is about to, he's about to die. And so in Deuteronomy, Moses gives these three long speeches. And you know what his favorite word in this book of Deuteronomy is? One of his favorite words is simply the word, remember. Let me read for you Deuteronomy 15, verse 15. Moses says, he says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. You, you, you know, Moses is speaking to Israel. He says, remember how dark it was and remember what God has done for you. In the same way, Paul is doing that for you and I today. He's saying, you shall remember that you were a slave to your sin to this world, and to the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself, but the Lord your God. Because he's rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved you, he made you alive together in Christ. He shall remember. This is, this is where we begin verse 11. Verse 11. 
And, and so here's what verse 11 and verse 12 are going to do. I'm, I'm going to give you a preview. They are going to take what we just saw in verses 1 through 3. They're going to take our desperate state. In verses 1 through 3, it describes our, kind of our everyday ordinary as we're going through life, the experience of that desperate state. And they're going to take it, and they're going to, they're going to take it to the 10,000-foot the view, and they're going to look down on our desperate state, and they're going to say, this is the significance of it. 1 through 3, that was the reality. 11 and 12 are the significance of it. And the significance is that you and I, in our very identity, we, we had no access to God. So, so let, me, let me read for you verse 11 again. Verse 11 says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision were what is called the, or excuse me, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, this is using language that maybe we don't use very often. I, I, I'm going to be PG today, but I want to do the text justice. In that day, in that day, the world was ethnically divided into two groups of people if you were a Jewish person. If you were a Jewish person, in that day, there were two groups of people. One were the Jewish people, God's chosen nation. These are what the text says are the circumcision. See, the Jewish people, on the eighth day after a child is born, they would, they would circumcise a, a male child, and that circumcision, it served as a symbol of their covenantal relationship with the one true God. The Jewish people took great pride in this. This was their, their national identity. That was one group of people. The other group of people, well, let me just tell you, it was everyone else. <laughs> It was the mass of humanity that did not have this covenantal relationship with the one true God. In this text, actually, when it says, you Gentiles in the flesh, this is what it means. You, you were not Jew, you ethnically Jewish. It says, you Gentiles in the flesh, and it says, called the uncircumcision. It, it actually is using almost a derogatory term. That, that, that term is not uncircumcised. That term is foreskin. This is what the Jewish people would call those who were not Jewish. This was their term for them. And so this is saying that you were, you were ethnically separated. You were covenantial, covenantally separated. You were not part of God's people. This is what it's describing. The point it's trying to make is that there was an external and obvious sign on the Gentile person that showed without any doubt that that person did not have access to God. That, that's the point he's making here. Now, this does not mean that the Jewish person had perfect access to God. Even if a Jewish person was following all of the, the ceremonial rites, even if a Jewish person was circumcised, this does not mean that they had perfect access to God. In fact, Paul, in Romans chapter 2, I'm just going to take a little bit of a detour, he, he explains this reality. In Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit not by the letter see the paul the point paul makes here is that someone could be jewish they could be ethnically jewish they can have all the external factors that the gentiles don't have and they can still be far from god 
Ephesians 2, 11 through 12, the point is that the Gentiles had an obvious extra layer or barrier to access to God. Their very identity excluded them from nearness to God. See, this is true of you as well. This is, this is the point it's making for us today. Your identity, before you trusted in Jesus, your identity was a wall that pre- prevented access to God. That's the point of verse 11. But, but then he describes it even further. Then he details the significance of this in verse 12, and he doesn't just detail their identity. He, he shows the significance of their identity by explaining how, how a Gentile and how you and I stood before God. Now, I, I don't know the, the ethnic makeup of everyone in this room. You might be Jewish. I'm, I'm imagining most of us here ethnically we're not. I did have one lady come up to me last night, and she said, Mike, I, I, I've got Jewish heritage. And I said, how much? And she uh, gave me some percentage. I said, no, you're, you're not Jewish. You're a Samaritan. <laughs> she didn't think that was very funny. I, I did, right? <laughs> but, but the point here, the point here, it, it sinks way deeper than skin tone or our genetics, the point here we're going to see, it sinks way deeper. And the point it, it describes is our standing before God and that there was a great divide. Well, let's keep going. I want you to see not just your, your old identity prevented access to God, but secondly, verse 12, I want you to remember that your old external standing did the same exact thing. Look at the first part of verse 12. Here's that word again. Remember. Remember. Remember that you were at that time, past tense. Okay, we're going to get to the present tense. Don't be too discouraged, but let's handle the past tense. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Now, here's what we have, and the rest of this text as well. This text describes five privileges enjoyed by those who were ethnically Jewish that those who were ethnically Gentile did not get to participate in. These five privileges reveal the lack of actual access and standing you and I had to God. Let me show you what these these five privileges are, and let me show you the significance of our lives without them. The first the first is that you stood with no Messiah. You stood with no Messiah. The, the, the next line there, it says that we were at that time separated from Christ. Now, in the Greek, the word Christ and the word Messiah, they're the same word. In fact, Christ is not Jesus' name. Most of us are aware of that, but maybe you're not. Jesus is not Jesus Christ. Jesus is his first name. Like, I'm Mike Freeman. It's Jesus Christ. No, Christ is a title. The title is Messiah. And so when this says that, they, that we stood separated from Christ, this is teaching that we stood separated from Messiah. Now here's, here's how I want you to understand this. I want you to picture yourself as a first century Jewish person. And I want you to imagine the rich history that you enjoy. You, you have access to the Old Testament scriptures 
In these Old Testament scriptures, your people have been collecting and holding on to for not just hundreds of years, but thousands of years. And these Old Testament scriptures, they testify to a great hope that you hold on to even as Israel in that day is occupied by the Romans. You are dominated by foreigners. You hold to this great hope. And this great hope is that one day, Messiah will come. In fact, in our Valley Bible reading plan, this week we were in Isaiah chapter 7. And if you read in Isaiah chapter 7, it talks about this Messiah, Emmanuel, who is going to come. This great hope. Well, listen, that was written over a thousand years before Jesus walked, or about 900 years before Jesus walked the earth. Listen, that was their great hope, not just for hundreds of years, but for thousands of years. You think about the first century Jew when they open up the book of Genesis. And they read about creation, chapter 1, and creation, chapter 2. And then they read about the fall in chapter 3 when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They did the one thing they were instructed not to do. Sin entered in. And God comes and he gives them the consequence for their sin. sin, And he gives the, the curse to man and the curse to the serpent. And he curses the woman. And in that curse, there is this great promise because her seed will have enmity. There will be an adversarial relationship between the serpent and the seed, the offspring of the woman. And here's what God says. says that the serpent will bruise the heel of your offspring and your offspring will crush the head of the serpent. You realize that that text is the first prophecy of the Messiah. The first prophecy of this Jewish hope that a first century Jew, that they cling to this promise, they cling to this hope, they have this expectation, they have this anticipation, one day Messiah will come. Right now life is hard, right now life is unfair, right now the Romans are terrorizing us, but one day Messiah will come. This is what the Jewish person held on to, but this is what the Gentile person had no connection to separated from Christ. They had no hope in Messiah. They didn't hold on to this privilege. They they lived much like our world does today. Day after day, week after week, trying to figure out what's going to keep them going. They didn't have this great messianic hope. That's the first privilege. You and I, we stood with no Messiah. Look at the second description. Secondly, you and I, we stood with no relationship to God. Look at the text. It says that we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Now, when it talks about the commonwealth, it's talking about the the citizenship of Israel. It's talking about the nation of Israel. Now, the nation of Israel, we must understand, they were in a special relationship with God. Because as a nation, they had this special relationship with God. This meant that everyone else, well, just put it very frankly, they did not. (laughs) The Gentiles did not have this special relationship with God. For the Gentiles to have such a relationship, the Gentiles had to become part of the Jewish nation. And so those who were Gentile, you and I included, we, we had no relationship with God. 
Now, I, I talk to lots of folks, and I talk to people that are outside of Christ, and, and we have conversations about their spirituality. One of, one of my go-to questions is, are you a spiritual person? And I'm amazed at how, even in this secular age that we live in, how spiritual our world is. People that don't know Christ, they'll tell me all about their practices of, of prayer, prayer to the universe, or even some, like, literally are pagans. They pray to other gods. I've met people that practice witchcraft, and they will tell me that in these rituals and in these endeavors, they have intense spiritual encounters. What do you do with that? They will tell me that in those spiritual encounters, they are in fact having a relationship with, with God. But, but here's, the, here's the sad reality. These Gentile nations would tell you the same thing in the first century. In fact, this letter is written to the Ephesians. And if you remember when Paul, when he planted this church in Ephesus, there was a riot, there was an uprising. And you remember what they chanted because they had this temple to Artemis? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They were incredibly spiritual people and they believed they had a strong relationship with a God. But the biblical reality is that there are two spiritual forces that operate in this world. There is God, the spiritual force of good, who made and loves his creation. And there is Satan himself and his demonic forces who appear as angels of light and are more than happy to give incredible spiritual experiences because their number one strategy is deception. So if they can get us to believe that we're having incredible spiritual experiences with and relationship with God, but that is separated from Christ, then the battle is over. And they have won. Maybe this describes some of us in this room who have come out of a maybe a works-based religion. Maybe have come out of a, a past that has dabbled in the occult or other spiritual practices. And we had incredible spiritual situations, but here's the reality. We had no relationship with God. Israel did. They had a special relationship with God, this special privilege. But let's look at the third. Not only did you and I stand with no Messiah, not only did you and I stand with no relationship to God, but, but the third description is you and I stood as those with none of God's promises. We had none of God's promises. Look, look back at the text. It says that we were strangers to the covenants of promise. You need to understand something about God. God is a God of promises. God is a God who has made promises throughout history. And because God is faithful, God will faithfully accomplish and fulfill every promise he has ever made. But before Christ, we stood as those who had not one single promise given to us. And this is... This is a stark reality. This is, this is a stark reality. This is uh, always the bridesmaid, never the bride. <laughs> this is the, the, the Israelites around you. They've got these incredible promises of God, these vows of God that he has made, and by his very character, he will keep them, but not being able to receive a single one of them. This is our external standing. 
Now, I would argue that the next two descriptions, the next two privileges that Israel had that those outside of Israel did not, they're more internal. Look back at verse 12. Let's read all of it together. Verse 12 says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Really what Paul is saying here, he's saying, remember your internal standing. We just looked at their external standing Their external standing is those who were, because they're not Israelite, because they're not part of the Jewish nation, they don't experience these privileges. But now these privileges, they go from external to internal. And here's what he says. He says, having no hope and without God in this world. You realize that without Christ, you stood with no hope. You stood with no hope. I mean, think about it this way. Have you ever wondered why our world seems to continually be pushing the envelope of sin further and further forward? I mean, our our culture, our world is not content with sin as it now stands. They're always looking for the next layer, the next level, the next pursuit. They're they're always looking for more because, because it never really satisfies. The reason that is, is because we live in a world and this world is in the business of selling false hope. We live in a world that sells false hope. Let me give you a few examples. We are now in football season. And I know some of you guys, you're going to go home today and you're going to watch whatever team you like and you're going to watch them play. And, uh, and every time your team plays, you, get, you sit down and you watch that game and you watch that game with that expectant hope. Maybe they're going to win. And if they win, your hope is satisfied for a moment until next week. And if they lose, your hope is fleeting and it's gone. I'm all for sports. I love sports, especially like God's sport, baseball, right? I'm all for sports, right? But, but if they become our hope, they're a false hope. The same thing with the music industry. You know, every week there are thousands of new songs released Every week there, there are hundreds of new up-and-coming artists and there are billboard charts that have been going for decades and decades and we're all looking for this next new song or this next new thing to listen to that's exciting or entertaining and we're all trying to go to the next concert that's going to give us a little bit of a high and then it ends. And it doesn't satisfy because we've been sold false hope. We've been sold false hope. Uh, Those two examples are pretty benign, but let me give you one that maybe is a bit more, I guess, uh, intense. Now, See, I think the sexual revolution is just a revolution of selling false hope. When our culture tells us, you should do whatever you want with whoever you want to do it with. That will make you happy. That will fulfill your desire. That will lead to to satisfaction. And then you do it, and and then maybe you go far down that road, and you pursue your heart's desires to the very end. And then I'm going to tell you, oftentimes it's sooner or later you're ending up in your pastor or your counselor's office heartbroken and empty, ruined and full of grief. Because he bought what the world was selling. 
You bought the false hope. This is the world that we live in. And this is your life and my life before Christ. We had no hope. So we had to go buy false hope. And we bought it wherever we could find a good deal. But it never lasted. This is where we stood before Christ. We stood with no hope because, look at the next phrase, because we stood with no God. We stood without God. It says with no hope and without God in this world. See, you might think to live without God is like the, the most freeing thing you can ever experience. I, I got no God. I don't got to listen to any of his rules. But, but when you live without God, this means that in very nature you live without hope. You have to buy the false hope. You have to figure out a moral system that works for you. And at the same time, your neighbor is figuring out a moral system that works for them. And neither of them are objective. And neither of them have an actual standard. And so it ends up leading us to, to this relativism that is ultimately saying, you have no hope. Because you have no God in this world. See, the point of these last two descriptions, which I think are actually a terrifying way to live, is that you stood without hope and helpless in the world. Therefore, remember. Remember who you used to be. Remember your spiritual standing. R remember your internal reality. Remember that all of this signified that there was a giant wall that is inscalable and impenetrable, and that wall prevented any and all access to the one true God. You couldn't climb it. You couldn't dig under it. You couldn't carve through it. All of this leads us to verse 13. Thank God for verse 13. Because what I want you to remember next is to remember your access to God is now through Christ. Your access. If you are here today and you have trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus, your access is now through Christ. Listen to the text. But now... Just like verse 4 when it says, but God, when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, he loved us and had great and rich mercy toward us. It says, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you were who, who your identity separated from you from God, your standing separated from you, you from God, you who were once far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. He, he, here's what this says. This says that you have, first of all, this says that you have a new identity. Your new identity is in Christ. We make a big deal about those words here at Valley. Whenever we see them in the text, we highlight them. We say, look here, circle here, highlight here. You are in Christ. It says, but now in Christ Jesus. Here, here's what Paul is saying. He says, We've remembered who we were. Now, remember who you are. What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Well, let's go back to verses 4 through 7. 
Verses four through seven reminds us that we are in Christ Jesus. This means that we have been, here it is, made alive together with Christ. You're no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. Verses four through seven says that you have been raised up with Christ. You are no longer living the life of disobedience following the prince of the power of the air. And verses four through seven says that you are now seated in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. This means that when God the Father looks at you, he doesn't see your unfaithfulness and your struggle. He doesn't see your wayward eye and your selfishness, although all of that stuff should be dealt with. But what he sees is you are now positionally seated in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places so that in the ages to come, he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward you who are in Christ Jesus. We just spent all this time remembering who we were. Just stop right now. I want you to just close your eyes for a minute. Those in this room who are in Christ, stop right now and remember. That's not who you are anymore. That old identity is no longer you. You are in Christ Jesus. That's your new identity. The text describes your new standing. Remember your old standing? Your old standing is that there was this great wall and you stood on the outside. You didn't participate in any of the privileges of Israel. You were far off. But look at the text. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, here's what it says, have been brought near. You've been brought near. Let me just speak specifically to to those in Christ that maybe you feel like you're far from God. You know, sometimes we feel that way, huh? Sometimes we look at our selfishness and we look at our, our greed or our lust or our anger and we say, man, I'm just such a terrible Christian. I must be so far from God. And we start thinking that way, but when we think that way, we're actually not thinking biblically. This text says that because of the blood of Christ, you are no longer outside of the wall. Instead, you have been brought near. And you didn't bring yourself near. You did not try harder. You did not work more. You did not do better. You did not reform yourself or fix yourself. You know how you were brought near? Look at the text. It describes your only access your only access is the blood of Jesus Christ. Graphically speaking, here's what we mean. Graphically speaking, what we're saying is that when Jesus hung on that cross, when he bled and died to pay the price for your sin, that was the same exact thing as going up to that wall that existed and stuffing that wall full of dynamite and C4 and then lighting the fuse and running for the hills. And that wall has been blown to smithereens. That wall that prevented your access to God the Father, it no longer exists. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, the Great Wall of China at its highest height, it's about 44 feet high. That's a pretty high wall. It's a pretty tough wall to scale. In fact, the Great Wall of China, it runs from sea level and it has an elevation of, oh, about 4,400 feet tall uh, or above sea level. That's, that's the elevation it goes to. That's, that's, a, that's a high wall. 
And its thickness, it varies from between 12 feet to 15 feet. This is a wall that is it's pretty, it's pretty solid. And yet the wall that prevented your access to God the Father doesn't even compare. It's miles high. It's, it's miles thick. It's, it's miles wide. The wall that prevented your access to Jesus Christ, that wall, listen, if you have trusted in Jesus in his death and resurrection, hear me well, that wall no longer exists for you. So, so if you're living your life, standing on this side, acting like that wall's still there, you don't have to live that way anymore. You have been brought near to God the Father. I just want to ask you to believe that today. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is not a, here's 10 steps to make your life better. I just want to ask you to believe that. Believe that through Jesus you have been brought near. And if you are here today and you have yet to trust in Jesus, if you're here today and you're coming every week and you're trying really hard to be a good Christian, you're trying really hard to be a good husband and a good wife or a good kid, you're trying really hard to serve in church, and you're hoping that all of these good things that you're doing, they're going to lead to God saying, okay, now you've done enough. Listen, you don't have to do it that way. That way will never work. Instead, will you stop trying to climb the wall And will you instead trust that Jesus has removed the wall that prevented your access to God? Let me pray for you. Father, help us to remember. Father, help us to remember not just who we once were, but more importantly, help us to remember that we are now in Christ Jesus Help us to remember not just that we were once far away in our rebellion and in our identity, but help us to remember now that we have been brought near. And Lord, help us to remember. Help us to remember that this is a gift. This is not something we work hard enough to achieve. This is something that you gave us freely. When Jesus came, when he lived that perfect life, when he died in our place, when his blood was shed, breaking down the wall that prevented our access to you. And Father, I pray that as we remember, you would help us live in this new reality. I pray that you would help us to come to you boldly and confidently in prayer. I pray that you would help us to live lives of of holiness and purpose, not for what we can earn, but rather because of what has already been given. Lord, help us to live lives walking closely with you, all because of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.